The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bible this morning, would you join me in the letter to the Hebrews? You can kind of crease it there, maybe. Because we will spend a, a great deal of time together here in this letter. The letter begins long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. That's what we will cover this morning. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. That'll be next week. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That'll be the week after. And after making purifications for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That'll be the next week. This is a a different kind of letter, a different kind of epistle. You'll see the heading here in your Bible, the letter... To the Hebrews. This is a letter where there is no author given. There is no recipient listed. It's not like one of Paul's letters where he begins with the clear introduction of who he is and exactly to whom he is writing his letter. There's no author given, there's no recipient given, there's no city in which it was to be sent to, and as such, we don't know the date that it was written. But there is some things that we can know from the content of the letter to to clue us in on some things. We know, for, for one, that this was a letter written by a second-generation believer. And by second-generation believer, I mean someone who did not, with their eyes, physically see and witness Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those heard. It seems by the content of the letter to be a a second generation believer. It was a letter written to Jewish believers. We know that because of the content of the letter. It deals a a great deal with uh, Judaism, with the Old Testament, with a right and proper understanding of how the Old Testament relates 
to the work of Christ on the cross. It was written to Jewish believers in a city somewhere, we don't know, to Jewish believers who are Hebrew. They're Hebrew. That's why it's the letter to the Hebrews. It was written to the Hebrew believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to Jews who had come to faith in Jesus. And the purpose of the whole entire letter is to encourage them to not fall away from the faith. It was to encourage them to not fall back into Judaism. And in doing so, either wholeheartedly rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ or sort of adopting some sort of syncretism. Syncretism is where you take two sort of opposing doctrines, theologies, belief systems, and try to synchronize, sync them up together in a way that they can both coexist. Though anytime we try to add anything to the gospel, it stops being the gospel. And so this writer is, is writing this letter to encourage these Hebrew believers in a city somewhere to not fall away from the faith. And the argument that the writer uses to persuade these believers is that Jesus is supreme. That's his argument. That Jesus is superior. That Jesus is better. That he is greater. He is better. He is higher. He is superior. He is preeminent over and above all Old Testament prophets, all Old Testament priests, all Old Testament kings. He is greater. He is better than the law. He is greater and He is better than anything, any other system of belief would offer us. Jesus is better. And because He is better, He is worth persevering through persecution. That's his argument. Jesus is superior. So as we come to this letter now, here we are some 2,000 plus years later. Maybe you wonder why in the world would we spend probably the next two years studying a letter written to a group of Jewish Hebrew believers in a city somewhere urging them not to fall back into Judaism. What exactly does that have to do with me and with you? After all, we are not Hebrew. We are not in danger of falling back into Judaism. But the reality is that we are tempted to fall away into other things. And the things that tempt us may not be a system of belief known as Judaism, but there are a whole other host of things that are tempting us to fall away from the faith. And there are a whole host of things that threaten us that if we don't accept them, then we will face persecution. And so in the face of this persecution, the temptation then is for believers to fall away. 
The falling away of the faith is called apostasy. It's called apostasy. Apostasy is the deliberate abandonment of the faith. It's not a, a word we use much today. It is a word that you see in the Scriptures. It is a theme that you see over and over again in Hebrews. For example, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is apostasy, and while we may not necessarily use that language today, there are some other terms, other vernacular that in recent years anyway has become um, a, a popularized way to identify with what is ultimately apostasy. And I believe it's, it's an attempt to sort of lessen the blow because apostasy carries with it, a, at least in church world, I mean, it, it should carry with it some serious weight. And so the, the language used today, the term used today that has been popularized isn't apostasy, but it is deconstruction. It's deconstruction. Are you familiar with that language, the language of, of deconstruction or the idea of, of deconstruction, to, to deconstruct your faith? The reality is, is that it probably would be better understood as deconversion. There's, there's sort of two sides of deconstructionism. One side is sort of a, a deconstruction of a system of belief or theology that maybe we've been taught that isn't very biblical. And as we're exposed to the Bible, and we, we hear accurate um, preaching and teaching, and we read good books, and we understand the meaning of the text, we can sort of begin to deconstruct some, some theologies that we were taught that, that maybe aren't biblical. Now, that's a good thing. I don't think that is necessarily deconstruction. That is more of a reformation of our heart. Um, after all, that's what the, the Reformation did in the work of the Reformers like Martin Luther. It was an attempt to take us back to historic Orthodox um, Christianity and theology and belief. And so there's that part of deconstruction, which is, is a good thing, but I, I, it's labeled deconstruction, but I don't necessarily think that it is deconstruction. What is more rightly understood are people who have who have through their life believed and, and proclaimed historic Christian orthodox theology and doctrine, a belief in the gospel, and have now taken what the, had been built in their life and begun to deconstruct it, pull it apart, where there is left then no resemblance of real Christianity or the gospel. And in many cases, this person then eventually doesn't just deconstruct, but they deconvert. 
falling away completely from the gospel. For example, there's a, a pastor that you are probably aware of, though you may not remember his name, but he wrote one of the best-selling books um, when I was you know, a, a teenager anyway called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. His name was Joshua Harris. His name is Joshua Harris. And he was a, a pastor um, and has deconverted, fallen away from the faith. You might, that's sort of for the folks older like me, for the you know, younger folks, you might be familiar with a pair of uh, entertainers, comedians, popular on uh, YouTube, called Rhett and Link. The mythical morning began as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and have deconverted, <laughs> fallen away from the faith. There are others that maybe aren't like Joshua Harris or Rhett and Link who would say, I am no longer a believer. But there are others who have deconstructed to a point to where while they still claim to be believers in the gospel, they have fallen away from true and real orthodox gospel and um, historic Christian doctrine that they're not genuine believers because you can't believe the things they believe and still be a genuine believer. These would be pastors um, like Rob Bell, who would claim to be still a believer, not distancing himself from Christianity, yet holds beliefs that are not congruent with Orthodox Christianity or people like Jen Hatmaker. This isn't anything new. Now we're witnessing this, we're living in this, we're watching this in real time, and there's, you know, we're listening to the podcasts about them. But this isn't anything new to be threatened by some outside uh, force in culture to fall away from the gospel. This isn't anything new. These early first century believers were in danger of this, and, and so are we. They were in danger to Judaism. And so what is it that we are in danger of mostly? And there are a load, a truckload of things that are in danger. But primarily, the thread that I see, at least, that runs through most all of these is progressivism. To believe that somehow we have progressed beyond what God's Word says. We are higher, more moral. How can we be more moral than the one who defines morality? It's impossible. Nowhere is this progressivism seen more clearly or is as persuasively used to cause people to fall away from the faith 
than in our current sexual revolution. Where progressivism, so-called progressivism, though it isn't anything new, seeks to normalize what God has called abnormal and to welcome into the realm of Christian doctrine what is outside the realm. And in acceptance of these things, they lead us to a full-scale rejection of the truth of God's Word. We see this play out real time before our very eyes in the push for the full-scale acceptance of homosexuality. Look, that, that ship has sailed. It's here. And now it continues to progress beyond that into issues of gen, gender or trans issues. That's what our, our culture wants to tell us that the war is over. But that isn't really what the war is over. The war is over the authority of God's Word. Did God really say? And that's the question, right? Did God really say? Homosexuality is a sin. Did God really say that there are only two a male and a female created in His image. Did God really say? See, the war is, the temptation is, is over the authority of, of God's Word. After all, that was the first temptation, wasn't it? Did God really say, don't eat from the tree? That was the first temptation. It's still the Temptation used by the evil one today. This is the temptation used here. The believers that this letter was written to. To rightly understand God's word. The place of the Old Testament. Now bound up in the question, did God really say, is a remarkable idea, isn't it? One that I think that maybe falls a little um, deaf on us because we've grown maybe a little numb to it, but it is absolutely remarkable. And that is that the God of the universe has spoken. Isn't that amazing? That God Himself has spoken to us. Of all the themes that the writer of Hebrews could have opened with, this is the one that He chose to use. The reality that God has spoken. That is what we are looking at this morning in these first sentences. The nature and the necessity of God's revelation. As the foundation and the groundwork to encourage believers in 
Whatever city this may be, to not fall away from the faith. And it is our encouragement this morning to not fall away from the faith. The reality that God has spoken to us, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. These are two of the most remarkable words. God spoke. God spoke. What it means is that God Himself has made Himself known to us and He has done so by speaking to us. You see, God by His very nature is different than us. God is other than us. God is separate than us. God exists in a totally and completely different realm than us. One, a realm that we are incapable of getting to. God exists outside of us. God exists outside of our very own realm in another realm that we're incapable of of perceiving into, getting into, so that we could find out about Him. The the natural man cannot escape into the supernatural. God is in the supernatural. We are in the natural. And were it left up to us, there's no way that we could ever know Him. Because He's so other than us. Now, you may be thinking, well, what about creation? What about the natural realm? Doesn't God speak through the natural realm in a way that we could come to know Him? And your thinking of that probably stems from Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul writes, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have, clearly, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that we are without excuse. And the reality is that God's fingerprints are all over creation. And they're there in such a way that makes it clear that there is a God. That's what creation declares to us. God's fingerprints are there. So that it's clear to us that there is a God and we can know some things about Him. But there's a big difference. There's a great chasm between knowing some things about Him and knowing Him. There's a big difference between seeing the fingerprints of someone and shaking their hand. Creation is... There, and God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, that He is God, and that He has the power to create, exists for us. But it isn't enough for us to fully know Him. It is only enough to condemn us. That's what Paul is saying here. In creation, there's enough evidence of God to condemn you. That's what Paul means when he says, for you are without excuse. Every human being who has ever lived is without excuse when they stand before God because enough of of the reality of Him is present in creation. 
Enough to know he exists, but not enough to know him. And so if we are going to know him, which we have to know him, if we're going to know him, then we are dependent on him making himself known to us. Because we can't get to him. We are dependent on him to reveal himself to us. This is the necessity of God's revelation. We are dependent on God revealing himself to us. And God has chosen to do that by speaking to us. And God has spoken to us through his word. The writer of Hebrews tells us some things about the nature of this revelation, doesn't he? He begins, long ago. Long ago, meaning that throughout history, God has spoken. See, the writer is taking us back to what God has already said throughout history. What what the writer of Hebrews is doing right from the beginning, the very first two words, is he is taking us back to the Old Testament, to the recorded words of God from long ago. Long ago. At many times and in many ways. God spoke long ago in many times and in many ways. In many portions and in many ways. Now, this is um, a, a play on words in the Greek. We lose it in the English. It's, it's there in, in the Greek language. It's the word... Palumeros is times, and palutrepos ways. That's why I alliterate, because the Bible alliterates. It's a play on words. In many times and in many ways. What that means is that God chose in his sovereignty to speak at different times, And in many ways throughout history. What the writer is bringing us into is the realization that what we have from God is a progressive revelation. It's an unfolding revelation that God has from long ago throughout history in many different times and in many different ways progressively revealed himself to his creation more and more. Sometimes God spoke in visions. Sometimes he spoke in parables. Sometimes he spoke by type. Sometimes by symbols. Sometimes audibly. Sometimes in dreams. There's lots of different ways God has spoken. At lots of different times. Sometimes God spoke in narrative. Sometimes God spoke in poetry. Sometimes God spoke through the law. Sometimes God spoke through prophecy. Sometimes God spoke in warning. Sometimes God spoke in blessing. In many different times. And in many different ways. Throughout history, God has spoken. He has progressively revealed Himself to us. This is what we have recorded in the Old Testament. 
Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is how we know these are Hebrews that he's writing to. Long ago, in different times and in different ways, God chose to to reveal himself, to speak. The God of the universe chose to reveal himself to us, to make himself known to us, to our fathers, through the use of prophets. Sometimes God spoke through kings. Sometimes he spoke through priests. Sometimes he spoke through shepherds. Sometimes he spoke through criminals. Sometimes he spoke through nobodies. But always, in every occasion, it was God himself speaking. It was God making himself known so that we can know him and we could have a relationship with him. The Old Testament is the words of God revealed to us from God. And God is the one speaking. He is the author speaking to us through men by His Holy Spirit. And as such, all that we have in the Old Testament is trustworthy and authoritative. And it is as if God is speaking directly to us. And if it is, then we must take it that way. Even when it offends our modern or progressive sensibilities. If God said it, then we must take it as authoritative. Even when it runs up against what culture tells us to accept or reject. His word is authoritative. Even if we don't like it. He is creator. We are created. We adjust to Him. He does not adjust to us. We accept the hard things. Not just because He is some mean God, but because He wants a relationship with us. But He's God. So the relationship is on His terms and not our terms. God in His sovereignty long ago at many times and in many ways, He spoke. And He did so to Old Testament fathers by the prophets. But yet this progressive revelation of God was incomplete. You see, God wasn't finished. He had a fuller revelation of Himself to make. And the fullest revelation of God speaking to us, of God revealing Himself to us, is seen in His Son. You see it in three contrasts that the writer gives. You see it first in the when. And you can kind of look at these two clauses together. The first is the when. On one side you have long ago. 
But now, in these last days, verse 2, you have the whom. To whom did God speak? Well, you had to our fathers. Now you have, He has spoken to us. And you have the contrast of the how. You had at many times and in many ways by the prophets. But now by His Son. By His very own Son. By His only Son. For many ways and many times and many prophets and many fathers to one and only Son. God, in the fullness of time, has made Himself fully known to us because He came to reveal Himself to us in His Son. This is, this is Jesus' attesting to the reality that He is the perfect self-revelation of God to humanity because He is God in John 14. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to, to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough to us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. He is the greatest, the most full revelation of God to us. It's seen in His Son. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. What the author is doing which is the whole weight of this letter, is showing the superiority of Christ. That Jesus is the greatest self-revelation of God to us. Now this is not to minimize the Old Testament. We are not minimizing the Old Testament. We are magnifying <laughs> Jesus. You can magnify Jesus as the greatest and fullest revelation of God to us without minimizing the Old Testament. He's just that much greater. This is what Jesus does. Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm not minimizing the Old Testament. I'm not minimizing the law. I'm not minimizing the prophets. I'm not minimizing what God has said long ago at many times and in many ways to our fathers, to the prophets. No, I have come to fulfill them. I have come because I am the greatest self-revelation of God. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not 
An iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes at least one of these commandments and teaching others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We're not minimizing the Old Testament. The writer of the Hebrews is not minimizing the Old Testament. No, he holds it up as God's revelation to us, but in doing so, as he elevates it, it just elevates Christ all the more. As great as it is, Christ is greater. Christ is superior. The implication for the Christian Jew is then, why would you ever want to go backwards? Why do you want to go back? No. God has come in His Son to reveal Himself in a greater way, a greater revelation. You see, the Old Testament, even as the Word of God, God Himself revealing Himself to us, it was pregnant with longing. I mean, it was pregnant with the longing of a greater revelation. We just got done with a number of months in Genesis with the life of Abraham. And weren't we just always pregnant with longing? Longing for an offspring, longing for a promised heir, longing for a king, longing for a promised land. That's how all of the Old Testament is. It is pregnant with longing for a greater revelation. It's pregnant with the anticipation of the promised Messiah. That long ago, at many times and in many ways, as God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, it was done so as a preparatory work. Because eventually, in the fullness of of time, God would make himself fully known. Speaking to us by His Son. This is what Advent celebrates. God coming to make Himself known to us. Because we're incapable of getting to Him. Advent celebrates God leaving the supernatural and being clothed in the natural. God coming to us. The Word becoming flesh. Jesus is the very Word of God, right? We just read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has, in the past, spoken to us in a lot of ways, at a lot of different times, through a number of means, to our fathers, through the prophets. But now, the good news is, God has spoken once and for all through His Son. The very words of God made flesh and dwelt among us so that we could witness with our very eyes the glory of God Himself. Not through some 
mediator, priest, or conduit, prophet, but in God himself. We couldn't get there, so he came here so that we could know him and be in a relationship with him because when we gaze upon the Son, we are gazing upon God, the greater revelation in Jesus Christ. Now, we're not getting there this week. That's where the writer goes. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And he declares the excellencies of the son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is greater. He's the greater revelation because He is God in the flesh. And when we taste and we see that He is better, why in the world would we ever want to turn back to anything else? How do we keep the faith? How do we keep the faith in a culture that's constantly pulling us away from the truth? How do we keep the faith? We keep it by seeing Jesus for who he is. The greater revelation, God himself in the flesh. God making himself known to us. He is the authoritative word. And so what do we do? We hold tightly to him. Knowing and believing that he is better. Come what may, he is better. Take it all away, he is better. Don't fall back into things that are but types and shadows. Hold on to the substance, he is better. That's all of Hebrews. Father, would you help us in the face of our own temptations to fall away? Would you help us above all things to see Jesus The word of God made flesh, dwelling among us. God himself coming to make himself known to us. The greater revelation so that we could not just know about you, but know you. Not just see your fingerprints in creation, 
but see your nail-scarred hands. That we would hold tightly to Jesus. Because he is better. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.